Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you all, and uh, good to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Um, I have a few things to announce this morning. Um, the first um, and most immediate is um, if you would like to join the fellowship tea, and for some reason you haven't quite managed to get your um, booking in, uh, then please do speak to John Omas uh, after the service. Um, one of the aims behind the fellowship tea is to um, allow us to join together as a church family. Um, and those of you who are members of the church will know that we've got a time of communion before that tea. Um, if you've got children um, that you'd like looking after um, and you're going to be coming to the communion service, um, then do um, speak to John and Maz. Um, and we'll try and share that around so as many of us can get to communion as possible. Next announcement is about next Sunday morning. We're having a special Remembrance Day service, which is starting at 5 to 11. Um, we're hoping that a good number of us will be able to invite friends along to it, and there are invitations at the back of the chapel uh, if you'd like them to invite your friends. My last announcement is for the ladies. Um, it's about the Holly Wreath evening, uh, which is now open for bookings. The aim of the Holly Wreath evening is to give us an opportunity to invite friends who haven't heard about Jesus or don't often hear about Jesus to join with us in an informal setting and uh, to hear a message about Jesus. So please, if you haven't got friends that you can invite, think of some, um, and um, hold back from, in, um, from booking your place, because our aim is to try and fill the places with people who haven't heard about Jesus. That's the announcements. We're here to worship God, and it's great to think in a week where the leaders of the world have been talking perhaps panicking about thinking about what what are we going to do, we come to the majestic one who rules completely. So let's stand and sing, name of all majesty, the king of the ages, let's worship him.
Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we do thank you that we come to the King of Kings. We pray that as we come to worship you, you will send your Holy Spirit so that we're not just praying what first comes into our heads, but that we are in step with the God of heaven. Lord, we thank you that you promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here in the middle of us. And Lord, we will pray that we will have a sense that we are meeting with God, the maker, the creator, the one who knows us. And Lord, you you know what this week's been like. Oh Lord, you know that there are things that we're ashamed of. And we pray that because Jesus died to pay the price for sin, that you'll forgive us, that you'll accept us. And that as we pray to you, we'll have that sense of real closeness to you, that sense that our Father in heaven is hearing our prayers. Oh Lord, we do thank you for the memory of Jack and his love for you and how often he was so full of love for you that he wanted to cry out to praise the Lord. And Lord, we are glad that we are confident that he's with you forever doing just that. And we ask that his example will be something that makes our hearts jump, makes our hearts think, oh Lord, you have been good to each one of your children. Oh Lord, we know that when we were in darkness, you called us into your glorious light. And Father, we thank you that you've been so patient with us, because so often we've turned from you, so often we've gone our own selfish ways, and yet you say that if we come back to you, You're like the father in the story, running to welcome the son that had gone away. And Lord, we pray that many sons and daughters, many who have turned from you, will be turning back to you today. And Lord, we ask that your spirit will be working in our hearts so that we praise and glorify you, not just with our words today, but the way we work and study and live on Monday morning and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And Lord, we pray that we will be a light in this dark world. And Lord, I ask that you'll give us opportunities, those of us who know you, to talk to people about you, to declare how wonderful you are, how mighty you are, and how no one is too bad to be accepted by you. Oh Lord, we know that naturally we're, people are dark, people don't want to go to you. We, we, we don't want a king to rule over us, we want to do our own thing. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be working mightily in our country to wake us up, to make us realise that one day we will stand before the Holy God. And Lord, I pray that you will stop people blocking their ears, that you will stop people following lies, that the concern that people rightly have will be taken by a greater concern, a concern that they will be meeting their God. Oh Lord, I ask that each of us will will live today and tomorrow in the thought that one day we will stand before you and we will give account for every deed done in our bodies. Oh Lord, we ask that you'll help Mark as he preaches to us from your word. Lord, help him to speak clearly and we pray that your word will come through powerfully. And Lord, we pray for our country too. Oh Lord, we ask that you will give us leaders who are honest. You will give us, as people, as a, a, a community, a heart of compassion. Oh Lord, we, we sense that We are selfish and we don't want to share and we don't want to change 
because others need that change. Oh Lord, we pray that you will give us a right attitude. And Lord, we pray too that there will be a sense of the truth of things. Oh Lord, we we hear so many silly ideas. Oh Lord, we pray that the truth of the way you've made things will be something that has a bigger impact in our society. And Lord, we pray for the work of people like the Christian Institute and ask that you will help them to have a big and a clear and a Bible-based voice. Oh Lord, we need you to do so much. We pray, Lord, that you will be with us in our everyday lives. We've prayed for government, we've prayed for organisations, but we pray for ourselves. Lord, you know what is bothering us. You know whether it's our friendships and relationships, whether those are are struggling, whether illness is a concern, whether it's the problems of work. Oh Lord, we pray, Lord, that everything will be in our hearts knowing that you're in control and being done to please you. And Lord, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters, that they will have that confidence that whatever's going on now, one day they'll be with you forever and everything will be perfect and good. Oh Lord, do fill our hearts with rejoicing that God is good and has been good to us. And do help us as we continue to worship now. Amen. We uh, continue praising God um, with the song, Who Has Held the Oceans in His Hands? This is our God. front for the children's talk.
Good. Oh, this is so much better having you down the front, isn't it? That's great. Okay, can you all see? Good. Right, now I want to see your hands. See your hands? I've got two hands. Yeah, we're going to talk about hands this morning. Think about hands. And we've all got two hands. And I've got two questions that we're going to answer. There's the first one's this. How much water can you hold in the palm of your hand? So hold your hands out. Two. Two, two what? Two bottles of water. Okay. <laughs> hold, hold your hand out. Now the palm of your hand is the little indent here, right in the middle. Okay. How much water do you think you could hold in that? Ten. Ten is getting more. It's meant to be getting less. Well, I'll tell you what. Who has a cow pole if they're feeling poorly? Okay. About five mil. Now, I think that in the palm of your hand, you could probably just about get five mil before it falls over the edge. I mean, I could, I could just about get a, a dessert spoon of water. That's pretty pathetic, really, isn't it? That's all I could get in the palm of my hand. That's how much water I could get in the palm of my hand. But what if we uh, had a bit of imagination? We thought, what if I could hold Goldsmith's swimming pool in my hand? How big would the palm of my hand have to be to hold Goldsmith's swimming pool? Easy answer, actually, yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, great. Scientist coming on there. Okay. You'd have to have a hand the size of Goldsmith's swimming pool to hold the water, wouldn't you? Yeah? But Isaiah, who's a prophet in the Bible, he asked this question. Who has measured the oceans in the palm of their hand? So not just a swimming pool, but in the palm of their hand can hold all the water of the whole earth. Who could do that? That's a ridiculous question, isn't it? None of us could do that. We'd have to have a hand the size of the world, really, wouldn't we? Because most of the earth is covered in water. So that's one question. And I think that's a bit of an impossible answer, certainly for us. Okay, here's the second question. So hold your hands out again. What could you measure with your hand span? Anyone know what your hand span is? Where, what point is that on your hand? Yeah, Flynn? Do you know? Yeah, it is when they're fully stretched. So hold your hands out. Fully stretched. Okay, and that is a span. And before tape measures were invented, um, that's what people would measure things with when they were grown up. Hand span. Now, I'm just wondering what sort of hand spans we've got here. So hold your hands out. Who wants to measure their hands? Okay. Right, so we've got 160 cent- um, 16 centimetres there. Really nice and wide. Yeah, 15 centimetres. Well, let's have a small hand. How wide are the oars? Nine centimetres. Yeah, another one here. That's about 14. Someone over here. Yeah, all a bit bigger there. 17 centimetres. Yep. So what could we measure with the span of your hand? Well, actually, look, this is about a pen. That's about how long your hand span is. You could measure in pens, so you could measure the floor. It'd be a waste of time with the tape measure now we've got. But tiny little hands. And also I've got here... Your hands were much smaller when you were a baby. I mean, let's have a look what we've got here. Or maybe afterwards. About, about three centimetres wide. Tiny, isn't it? Tiny little hands on a baby. You can afterwards. Come find me afterwards. And if it's not too sleepy, you can have a, have a look. Um, and so but imagine if we had some imagination again and said, right, OK, well, with, with my hand span, I can measure uh, ooh, Crowborough Town Centre to Tunbridge Wells Town Centre without not crushing too many buildings. And that's the distance, my hand span. You'd have to have huge hands. Wouldn't it be scary, wouldn't it, living anywhere between Crowborough and Tunbridge Wells? Big hand coming down, just measuring. And uh, Isaiah's got this other question. Who has used his hand to measure the sky? There's not just somewhere on the earth, but... Up in the sky, it's all like distance from the sun to the earth, about 93 million miles away. Who could do that? Whose hand would be big enough to do that? Wait a minute, hold on. Who do you think then Isaiah is talking about or trying to get us to think about? Yeah, go on the Flynn. Yeah, God, yeah. He's trying to get us to think about how great God is. Now, if you're really clever, you say, hang on a minute, God hasn't got hands because God's the spirit and we can't see God. 
So he doesn't have hands. So why is Isaiah talking about God's hands? Well, Isaiah knows how tricky it is to really grasp what it means that God is a spirit. Do you understand that? Anyone here understand what it really means that God's a, a spirit? He's there, but we can't see him. It's hard to understand, isn't it? So Isaiah is sort of really saying, well, if God had hands, he'd be able to hold the whole oceans of the earth in his hand. There'd be plenty more space. That's how great he is. When you think about God, think big. And, uh, and when he uh, marks the span of his hand across the sky, yeah, sun to, to earth, 93 million miles, yeah, one hand's width. Or the whole of the Milky Way. If you were to travel at the speed of light for 100,000 years, probably you'd be about the length of the Milky Way. And God just goes, yeah, no problem. That's how great, that's how mighty I am. I wonder why, uh, why was Isaiah saying that? Well, the people he wrote to, the Israelites, they were prisoners in a foreign land. They'd been hoiked off and taken away and they weren't very happy. And, um, and do you know what they were saying? God's forgotten all about us. God doesn't care about us. And Isaiah's saying, no, God is great, far greater than you could imagine. Nothing's impossible for him. He can bring you home. And then someone said, well, yeah, but he's so great, he's not really interested in us. But do you know what? Isaiah had some other great news. Who could read this out for us? Because this is something um, that um, Isaiah said. Yeah, go on. Uh, Flo, could you read it out nice and loud for us? Okay, so Isaiah is now describing somebody, something quite different, really. He's saying, though God is so big and powerful, he can hold the oceans in his hands, he can, he can mark out the skies with his hand. He also cares. He cares for little people like us with a hand span who can measure in pen lengths and have about five mils of water in their hand. Yes, that's great news. And, and I'm thinking, well, how, how did he do that? How can he do that? And we know, don't we, God sent his son into the world. God left his big hands behind with his father. He said, Dad, I'm leaving the, the big hands with you. And I'm going to visit earth. Here, look, here's this baby again. Okay. I, um, I wondered if you were alive when Jesus was born, going around to Mary and Joseph's house and saying, can we hold the baby, please? And Mary would put the baby in your arms and you'd look down and Jesus' big, powerful hands are now tiny little things, much smaller than your hands, much weaker than your hands. And you're holding the Son of God in your arms. How strange and weird would that be? And Jesus, Jesus grew up and he used those hands to heal people. He used those hands to touch a leper and make him well. He used his hands to raise people from the dead. And he showed us how much God cares for us by what he did with his hands. And in the end, he gave up his hands to the cross, didn't he? To die on the cross to rescue us. So we finished. Take this away, okay? When you think about God, think big, all right? Because we spend far too much of our lives thinking about ourselves. And uh, so think big about God. And don't ever say that God doesn't care. Good, you've listened well, and go and sit down. Yeah, oh, sorry. Thanks, John. Well, we're going to uh, read from God's Word now, um, and it's going to be from Joel. Um, and um, part of part of me would um, uh, wish I had some musical ability, um, or at least to, to convey to you the, um, the the shock value of what Joel is saying here. Because if I was to stand and suddenly sound a trumpet, particularly the way I would play the trumpet, I would get your attention and there would be a, a waking up, uh, a sudden, wow, what's, what's being saying? And this is how um, our Bible reading starts. So we're in Joel chapter 2. Ah, right, okay. I'm going to read the first two verses, which won't be on the screen. 
And then we'll come into um, the passage that is on the screen. So Joel 2 starts with this command. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So there was an alarm call coming. Then in verse 11, it goes on to say, The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceeding great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I'm sending you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall be overflowing with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God. And there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Mark's going to be speaking to us from that passage after our next hymn. Which is, To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's join in singing.
Well, good morning once again, everybody. It's good to see you all. Unless you're uh, a person that keeps well away from uh, the news, uh, you'll be aware that COP26 is going on at the moment, the conference of the parties, uh, the 26th one, where the leaders of the world gather together, as Tony mentioned this morning, they gather together and they try and deal with climate change. And uh, Boris Johnson said this this week, He said, the world has long since run the clock down on climate change and there is just one minute to midnight. Action is required immediately to prevent a global disaster. Well, I'm not going to be talking about climate change uh, this morning. What I'm going to be doing is uh, opening up a part of Joel in the Old Testament uh, for us and sharing with you some of that. And Joel is telling his listeners that it is one minute to midnight. The action is required immediately if they are to avoid a complete disaster. Things are already bad for the people that Joel is writing to. Uh, there's an emergency situation going on. They've had a plague of locusts, and this plague has just been absolutely devastating. It's devastated the land. Listen to what it says. This is um, chapter 1, where it describes some of what's happening. It says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Just everything has just been eaten by these locusts. Verse 10 in chapter 1, it says this, The fields are destroyed The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up. And then in verse 17, the seed shrivels under the earth, the storehouses are desolate. So that the seeds in the ground are just all shriveled up there, no hope for the next harvest. The storehouses are completely empty this is a disaster. Even the cattle are groaning. It talks about the, the animals in the field being perplexed. They're confused about what's going on. Why is there no food around? It's devastating. It's a complete tragedy for the people at the time. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a harvest service. Many of you will uh, remember it. We had a table, that table over there, and it was stacked with food. We had so much food between ourselves that we had enough to share out and send to other people. And it's a real blessing, isn't it? But imagine, imagine if next year there was just no harvest. Imagine that everywhere you drove, you looked out at the fields and it was just completely barren. Just nothing. It looked like the fields had been torched. And uh, the shelves at Morrison's and Lidl and Tesco's and Waitrose, completely empty. Nothing in them. It's not that, you know, people are panic buying and it is tough getting things. There just is nothing. And all the little corner shops were they shut long ago because they weren't getting anything. And uh, the, the little uh, cupboard in your kitchen where you have food supplies is, is dwindling. And there's a few more edible things, but not really much. And, and the bigger problem is that all over the news we're seeing that there's nothing coming from abroad as well. Well, that's a bit of the, the situation. It's hard for us, isn't it, to imagine that. But that gives us a little bit of a glimpse as to what life was like for them back then. But Joel wants the people to understand that it's not just one of those things, what's happened. It's not just unlucky that they've had these locusts. You see, God wrote it in ink to his people many years before, where he said, if you obey me... If you follow me, I will bless you. But if you don't follow me, if you disobey me, then locusts will come and they will devour the land. God is judging his people here. That's what Joel wants us to see. This isn't a random locust attack. God is judging his people. And Joel is saying to everyone, he's almost shouting to everyone, listen, this is God at work. He's judging us. But as bad as this is, that's happened, it's happening at the moment, but there is something far worse that is still to come. That is a picture of something that is far worse that is still to come. It's far more terrifying. At the start of chapter 2, as Tony said, Joel says, sound the alarm. 
Let everyone tremble because the day of the Lord is coming near. God is on the march, it says, at the head of an exceedingly great army. Nothing like this army has ever been seen before and nothing will be seen like it again. When people catch a glimpse of this army, they go pale in their face. It describes this army as walking through a land like the Garden of Eden. But as it walks through, it just leaves a wilderness behind. It just devastates everything. It says their appearance is like the appearance of war horses. And they cannot be stopped. The earth quakes before them and the heavens tremble, it says. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. It's a fearsome picture of God coming towards his people with an army in judgment. Joel says it's going to be the great and awesome day of the Lord that no one can endure. Now we're not told exactly what the people of Judah had done wrong. Um, It may have been a mix of things. Uh, They were often uh, idolatrous, often worshipping anything and everything apart from God. Um, They often struggled with social injustice, so the rich people would often oppress the poor. There were all sorts of things, all sorts of evils that they did. Joel doesn't tell us exactly what the issue is, but what we do know is that they turned their backs on God. They didn't care about God anymore. They were doing things their own way, and they weren't listening to God. And God, the judge, is on the way. And yet, what does God really want? He's on the march with his army. His people have turned their backs on him. He's coming as a judge. But what does God really want? Does God want to crush them? Well, no. Actually, what he wants is something very, very different. He wants them to return to him. I'm just going to step over and get the clicker. He wants them to return to him. It's there in verse 12 of chapter 2. God says, return to me. And then in verse 13, return to the Lord your God. This is what God wants more than anything else. He wants his people to come back to him. He wants to show his people his love. And he wants his people to love him. It's a bit like uh, a husband who's calling out after his cheating wife and saying, please come back. All I want is for you to come back. That's what I want more than anything else. And that's what God still wants for us today. That's what God wanted then. That's what God still wants for us today. He wants us to come back to him. To obey him. The Bible says, some of you know this, the Bible says we've all gone away from God. It it talks about us being like sheep. We've gone astray. We've got lost. We've lost the shepherds. And maybe some of you feel that. Maybe some of you feel very distant from God this morning. You just think, I know, I'm I'm a long way from God. Or maybe some of you, um, actually even recently, you've been pretty close to God. You've been very thankful for that. But recently... You've just drifted. And suddenly you don't really care about God anymore. And you know that there's disobedience in your life, but it doesn't matter to you. God says, return to me. Come back. Well, Joel helps us answer some questions about this. So, when... When do we come back? When are they to come back in the time of Joel? Now. Now. Even now, declares the Lord. Even at this late stage, even as God is marching with his army towards Judah to judge them, even now, when it's this terrifying army, God is saying to them, return to me. Even now, when the people of Judah are thinking about this army and they're trembling and probably want to run in the opposite direction, God is saying, return to me. There is still time. Even though the people of Judah probably felt too bad to be anywhere near God, 
God says, return to me. There is still time to find safety in God. God hasn't got there yet. He's on his way, but he hasn't got there yet. There is still time. Now, we are in a very different situation to Joel. The day of the Lord that this describes has come and gone for Joel. But, you know, there's another day of the Lord that is coming. A day when Jesus will return. And this time, he's not going to come back as a, a, a baby or a gentle carpenter. He's going to come back as the judge of the living and the dead. This is how Jesus is going to return. And God is going to judge each one of our lives. And he's going to measure our lives against his measuring stick. And the issue is that every single one of us has fallen short. None of us match up to to the measurements, the standards that we need to make. And the clock is ticking until Jesus returns. The Bible says we don't know when it will be. But the Bible warns us, act now. Act while you can. Return to God. When Jesus was on earth, uh, listen to what he said. This is Matthew 4 verse 17. Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, return to God because God the judge is on his way. He's not here yet. There is time now, but he is on his way. Do you realise this? The seriousness of it. Do we need to be woken up a little bit to the seriousness of, of what this is saying? It's one minute to midnight. Listen to what God says to us through his spirit in Hebrews 3. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, today, if you hear his voice, listen to him. Don't harden your hearts. While there is still time, listen to God and return to him. And I just want to say just a very few quick words, just to the YP, so those of you up in the gallery um, and elsewhere, some of you in Sunday school as well, uh, Ace Action, I want to say just very quickly to you. There's some wise advice that's in the Bible for you. Some of you will have heard it before. And it says this, Remember your creator... In the days of your youth. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember God now while there is still time. It's so easy, isn't it? Children, teenagers, it's so easy to go, this time is for me now. When I get older, then I'll think about God. But, but it's, it's me now. God says, no. I really want to encourage you. Remember God now. Remember him when you're young, when you've got energy to serve him, but most importantly, when you've got time. God says, come to him now. So when, now, how? With all your heart. With all your heart. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. God isn't interested in a sort of half-hearted apology that the people might give. Most of us are pretty good, aren't we, I think, at telling one when someone's apologising, but it's only half-hearted. I think parents are particularly perceptive in this. Uh, They know, or you know, when your kids are only apologising, either because of the consequences, or because they don't want to get in trouble. We know, don't we? God isn't looking for some sort of uh, written apology. It's half-hearted. He's not looking for a, a kind of, well, I'll learn from this and I'll do better next time. That's not what God's looking for. He wants a complete heart change. Complete, genuine sorrow. A completely different attitude. It says this, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And then get this. And rend or tear your hearts and not your garments. Now, we don't do it much these days, do we? But in those days, uh, when they got upsetting news, they often tore their clothes. It was a sign of grief or despair. they just tear their clothes. But God is saying, I don't want you to rip your clothes. I don't care about external things that you might do. That's not important to me. 
actually what I want you to do is I want you to rip your hearts. It's pretty vivid, isn't it? But it's this idea of genuine internal change. This is serious. This is people taking this completely seriously. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Shortly before I uh, became a Christian, um, I received, I think it was a birthday card from Stephen Betty, I believe. And uh, it had a great picture on the front. I think it was a parachutist. um, And I stuck it on my wall. And um, there was a verse on it. I hadn't really looked much at the verse. And at that sort of time, I was sort of struggling to know, am I a Christian? What's a Christian? Wasn't totally sure. I thought might be, maybe not. Wasn't totally sure. But there was a verse on it. And, and one time, I suddenly actually read it. You know when you read something and you actually take it in for the first time? And it said this. It said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And it struck me as I read that properly for the first time that I, I was interested in God. I, can't, I guess I wanted to be right with God, but could I say that I was seeking God with all my heart? Not really. And I suddenly realised this is what God asks. This is what God desires, that we seek him with all our hearts. That's when he'll reveal himself to us. Next question. Why? Why? Simply because of what God is like. This is the reason that Joel gives us. Verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Yes, he may be judge. Yes, he may be awesome. Yes, he might be rightfully feared. But he is gracious and he is merciful. He's not only willing to forget our sins, but he's willing to pour blessings down on us. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And I think we can see this clearer in 2021 than Joel could in his day. If you read Jesus' life, you see the compassion with which he deals with people, the way he deals with sinners. And if you're in any doubt, have a look at the cross, where you see grace and mercy, love that cannot be matched anywhere else in history. When we return to God, we're not just accepted. We're not just kind of let in the door. He sees us coming from a, a long way off. Tony's already mentioned this, actually. God sees us coming from a long way off. And what does he do? He runs at us. And he throws his arms around us. And he welcomes us. That's what he does. And if you've never turned to God, if you've never known God for yourself, or if you've drifted away, Return to God. Return to God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Next question, who? Everyone. Who should return to God? Everyone. Verse 15 says, blow the trumpet in Zion. This is a bit like a fire alarm. Now imagine you're in a hotel and the fire alarm goes off and you know it's not a drill because you've seen the smoke, people are getting worried about it. What do you do? Well, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, you get out, don't you? doesn't matter whether you're having an afternoon nap. You get out. It's more important. doesn't matter whether you're having a shower. You find a towel, you get out. doesn't matter whether you're elderly and frail. You get out. Maybe someone helps you doesn't matter if you're a child. You get out. Everyone needs to get out. There's danger. You know, it's not a fire alarm in the book of Joel. But it is God's alarm that he's sounding. And everyone needs to gather together to turn back to God. Listen to what it says. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. 
Even the young couple that have just got married need to pay attention to this. The consummation of their marriage is less important than returning to God. And the reason they had to gather together like this is because back then they had no direct access to God. They had to be with priests who would be the the mediators, the communicators with God. They had to gather together to do that. You know, we don't need to do that anymore. Because Jesus is our priest. So it doesn't matter whether we're on the Ashdown Forest. It doesn't matter whether we're in a plane. It doesn't matter whether we're in a busy shopping centre. It doesn't matter if we're in church. Wherever we are, we have access to God. We can return to God right now. We don't have to have special priests with us because Jesus is our priest. Peter says in Acts 17, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere to repent. This is what we're called to do. Each one of us. Well, Joel doesn't tell us uh, in exact words how the people responded. But it's obvious from what God says next as to how they did. And uh, they returned to God and God has pity on them. God has pity on them. And we see things being restored Things being restored. He restores all that he has taken away as he pours his blessings on them. And I want us to see a couple of things within this. Firstly, God blesses his people for their good. God blesses his people for their good. Look at the kindness of God to his people. It's completely undeserved. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And God says, I'm going to remove all your enemies from you. In fact, I'm going to remove your enemies to the desolate wilderness that they made for you. And God even comforts the animals. I love this. He even says to the animals, don't worry, the pastures will be green again. The trees are going to bear fruit again. The storehouses will be full of grain again. This is very deliberately here a picture of Eden. It's the same language that's used deliberately. It's been completely restored. Restored back to perfection. This is what God is doing for them. And then you come to this beautiful promise in verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. All those wasted years. And God says, I'm going to restore those years to you. Not just the crops, but I'm going to restore the years to you. And I know that for many of you, that's been very special to you. Some of you who feel like there have been many years that have been wasted, it's a special verse. God is the the great restorer, and he restores completely. Well, when we return to God now, he doesn't promise to give us full cupboards of food. He doesn't give us uh, promise to give us a full and healthy uh, bank balance, uh, much as some of us might like it. But he gives us something better. He gives us Jesus. And uh, if you don't think that's better, then I'd like to gently suggest that you don't know much about Jesus. In a world that's crying out for satisfaction. This is what Jesus says to us in in John. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus completely satisfies us. More than anything else in this world, Jesus satisfies us completely. So God, he blesses his people for their good. But he also blesses his people for his glory. You see, the problem with Judah's sin is not just that it offended God. It's not just that. 
You see, when God then punishes Judah, the nations around don't then look at Judah and think, wow, God is a just God. They look at Judah and they think, where is your God? Your God can't even feed you. Your God can't even make crops. All the animals are dying. What sort of God do you have? You're starving. Your God's pathetic. That's what the nations around were saying. Where is their God? God's name is being dragged through the mud here. And so God blesses his people, partly because he cares about them. But even more so because he cares about his glory. God restores his people so they no longer live in shame. It it comes up three times. Verse 19, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So often we make this life about ourselves, don't we? Don't you find that, that so often we make ourselves the centre of our, our universe? It's all for him. This world is all for him, it's for his glory. Even when we are saved, we are saved for him. So often we, we, we kind of think of being saved and we think, yes, that's, it's almost like my ticket to heaven. I'm safe, I've been saved. Well, that's good. But even more importantly, it brings God glory. That's even more important. It's all about him. We are, we're saved to, to praise and to magnify God. So often, God is a part of our lives rather than us being a part of his. That God is some small part of our lives rather than us being a part of his. And that's why it's so wrong to just walk away from God and to ignore him. To turn our backs on him. Because it's all about him. And that's why, I was thinking about this earlier, that's why it's so extra remarkable that Jesus is sent, God sends his son Jesus into the world to die in humiliation and shame, where people mocked him. But he did it so that we can join in his glory. Just a closing comment. One thing that some of you may have noticed, if you're eagle-eyed and you know the, the passage well, um, is that I've missed out the bit where God gives them grain so that they can give it back to him in thanks offerings. That's what God says. He says, I'll give you grain so that you can give it back to me in thanks offerings. And, you know, God has given those of us who are Christians so much. He's blessed us with so much. And it should be our greatest delight as Christians to, to give back to God all that we can in thankfulness, praising and magnifying him, lifting him up so that everyone around us sees the beauty of God. So, very briefly, to sum up, Jesus is coming as judge. He's on his way. We don't know when he'll come, but we need to act. We need to act now. It's one minute to midnight. Joel wrote this many, many years ago, but the message is timeless. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. But if any of you have any questions or you'd like to talk it through with myself or anyone else, please do come and find us. We'd love to talk these things through with you. We're going to stand and we're going to sing our final song this morning. Who, O Lord, could save themselves, their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea, your grace is deeper still.
pray to finish. Lord God, I pray that each one of us would realise that to you alone belongs the highest praise. And Lord, if we are not praising you with our lives, Lord, if we are turning our backs on you, Lord, I pray that we would return to you. Lord, I thank you that even though you are a judge, Lord, you are gracious and slow to anger, full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I pray, Lord, that each one of us would return to you if we haven't already. Lord, that we would know the joy and the satisfaction and the blessing of knowing you. Lord, I pray that as we go into the the week ahead with whatever we've got coming up, Lord, I pray that we'd remember these things. Lord, speak to each one of us, I pray. And do bless us as we leave this place, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.